Hello, I'm Scott Sorrell here at the ADSA meetings with Kristen Gallagher from Michigan State University. We've got a Spartan with us today. Welcome, Kristen, to the Real Science Exchange. Thank you so much. Excited to be here at ADSA in Kansas City. Yeah, awesome. And my co-host today, Dr. Clay Zimmerman, the trusty, rusty Clay Zimmerman, and Carrie Estes. Uh, Kristen gave a, a, presented a poster yesterday. The title of her poster was Abomasal Infusion of Branch-Chain Keto Acids Alter Lactation Performance in Early Lactation Cows. Kristen, tell us a little bit about the study. Yeah, of course. So this was a USDA NEFA project that we worked through this past winter. Um, and we were looking at abomasal infusion of branched-chain amino acids or branched-chain keto acids in the early lactation period and its effects on performance and liver health, specifically looking at its relationship to fatty liver disease. So uh, this project, uh, the major results from this project were that branched-chain amino acids altered milk uh, yield, increased milk yield, milk protein uh, yield, milk fat, um, but we did not see any changes in liver triglycerides as opposed to the branched-chain keto acid infusion uh, altering and efficiently decreasing liver triglycerides. Oh. It's interesting that you uh, infused it abomasally instead of... Uh Jugularly. Jugularly, yes. Yeah. So, yes, trying to do long-term jugular infusions turned out to be a bit of a challenge, but our main objective was to deliver these amino acids and keto acids post-ruminally, um, and we're going to be analyzing plasma, um, branched-chain amino acid concentration, and other amino acid concentration to see how that is going to be affected. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, so we delivered these to the animals post-ruminally, and we got some pretty significant results that we're excited about. So I noticed that you infused very specific amounts of each of the amino acids. So can you tell us how you came up with those levels? Yeah, absolutely. So we infused uh, the branching amino acids are valine, leucine, and isoleucine. And with this uh, study, our objective was to increase plasma branching amino acids by approximately 30%. And that comes from some work done by Dr. Zhou um, in some previous research where he established there was a relationship between uh, animals in the early lactation period that he classified as having high liver triglyceride versus low liver triglyceride. And in those animals with low liver triglycerides and really in a lower risk of fatty liver disease, he found that there was an elevation of plasma branched-chain amino acids by about 30%. So that's where that came from. And to uh, determine if you know the uh, concentration of amino acids was correct, we did a preliminary trial where we had six cows um, of the same cohort that um, we were able to effectively increase branched-chain amino acids by that amount, so by about 30%. So, so Kristen, I think pro probably a lot of our, our listeners are familiar with uh, feeding or infusing branched-chain amino acids. Mm -hmm. What's the hypothesis behind the branched-chain keto acids? Right. So, again, we're interested in the liver's response to these amino acids. And unlike other essential amino acids that we might be delivering to the cow, branched-chain amino acids are not going to be metabolized in the liver. Most of the amino acids, over 80% of the amino acids, are instead going to be uh, metabolized by peripheral tissues, so muscle and adipose tissue. Um, and it's going to be... Um, uh, partially catabolized to these keto acids, which are non-nitrogenous, non-amine um, metabolite of these amino acids. And there, these branched-chain keto acids will then be uh, taken up by the liver, and they can be used as an energy source. And we have some cellular data that might show that 
uh, these branched-chain keto acids will affect uh, hepatocyte metabolism. So that was our target and our interest, was to understand the relationship between these branched-chain amino acids and keto acids and how they affect liver health and production. So you saw quite a response in production to the branched-chain amino acids. Yes, yeah. So we definitely saw a, a pretty big milk response that we're pretty excited about. And I will comment again that the diets or these treatments that we deliver to the cow we fed the same diet, but different treatments were not isonitrogenous or isoenergetic. So in our branched chain amino acid treatment, again, these are uh, amino acids with amine groups. We were feeding um, higher RUP to these um, branched chain amino acid supplemented cows. So I think we had, you know, just more um, nitrogen available for milk production um, in these treatments, uh, as well as there's some literature that goes to suggest that some of these amino acids we're feeding, such as leucine or isoleucine, can increase anabolic activity within the mammary gland, potentially increasing mammary plasma flow, activating uh, the mammalian target of rapamycin, mTOR. Um, um, so we think that there is, you know, just delivering more RUP, but also doing some more uh, anabolic work as well. Um, and with the keto acids, we didn't see any difference in our milk production response. But again, we saw uh, an effective uh, decrease in liver triglycerides. Uh, so that was exciting. So with your liver tag, mm -hmm. uh, you saw the reduction with the keto acids, yes. right? But yep. not necessarily with the branch chain. Yeah, not with amino acids. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to kind of continue to look at the mechanisms that are going to be occurring in the liver. Um, so uh, we have tissue that we're going to be looking at gene expression relating to uh, lipid uptake and how these keto acids might be affecting lipid uptake, uh, beta oxidation. Um, my lab mate, Isabel Bernstein, is going to hopefully be coming out with, well, we'll all be coming out with a lot of future analyses from this project. Um, I'm excited to really go through and better understand what's happening with our plasma amino acids. Um, we just sent those samples out last week and are hoping to get a lot of uh, information back from that. Um, looking at antioxidant status of the liver, um, as well as we have uh, tissue samples from muscle, adipose, um, and more liver tissue that we're excited to analyze. So, so Kristen, um, I, know, I know soy protein is high in branched chain amino acid content, mm -hmm. so is it possible to formulate a diet today that might deliver more branched chain amino acids? Yeah, of course. So branched chain amino acids are really important in dairy nutrition in general. Um, they make up over 20% of the total amino acid profile in milk. Um, they, there's a lot of these branched chain amino acids that are going to be found in different forages and different protein products in our TMRs. For example, uh, we just fed a common Midwest diet that was 50% forage to our early lactation animals. And leucine was about 1.3% of the total dry matter versus some amino acids we might be familiar with. Methionine uh, was about 0.29% of dry matter. So even without supplementing it just on our base TMR that was being delivered, I think what we need to be wary of is how um, these branched amino acids are going to be fermented in the rumen. Um, because they will become branched chain VFAs and they can have you know, different end products once they're fermented in the rumen. So certainly um, if you just better, or if you can balance for what is going to be delivered post-ruminally um, for in these high protein um, products, you could potentially establish 
similar results if you really wanted to increase uh, branch chain amino acids, plasma branch chain amino acids. It would certainly be a challenge, but um, could certainly be done. Uh, meanwhile, the branch chain keto acids, uh, this is again a metabolite, so we don't currently have a way to feed those branch chain keto acids in its pure form. Um, so we'll see if any technology is going to be applied with, to that in the future. So I'm kind of curious, Clay, uh, we're talking about practical implications. Would we need to, uh, maybe this is a better question for Kristen, but maybe think about uh, protecting them ruminally with... Uh... Yeah, so I mean, there is still, I think, a lot of work to be done to figure out, um, again, yeah, when we should be supplementing these branched-chain amino acids and what they might be able to do for different herds and different dairy farmers. But I think that it certainly is a... Um, uh, there's a good opportunity that these will be these could be things that we're balancing for in the future and that delivering these post-ruminally can be very helpful to the animals and to milk production and health responses. Um, yeah, so I think that's definitely a very promising uh, subject to better uh, better identify. Yeah, so you're going to be finishing up your thesis. You're going to be moving on. Are you going to be handing the ball off to, to anybody else uh, upon your departure? Yes, absolutely. So yes, I'm a grad student in Dr. Uh, Zhang Zhou's lab at Michigan State University. Um, and I had a co-lead on this big project. Um, her name is Isabel Bernstein. Uh, and we have a lot more work to be done with this project and are super excited to better understand the mechanisms behind branching amino acid, branching keto acid uh, metabolism. Uh, so yes, so I'm hoping to get into the industry after this, and we'll have a lot more information coming from our group. Very well. Maybe we'll have Isabel in this chair next year. I hope so, yeah. yeah. So so what are your plans after you graduate? Um, so after graduation, you know, I'm excited to just get back in the industry and work in technical sales and um, consulting uh, and really just help farmers and make better decisions for the herds out okay. there. Okay, and I understand you may want to go back to New York. Yeah, so I'm originally from uh, central New York, not too far from Syracuse, uh, and yeah, headed back to the east coast north northeast so we'll see what happens there all right very well anybody looking for a a very bright a very energetic uh master student we've got one here in Kristen, and so uh give her a call Kristen. thank you very much for joining us today absolutely thank you so much for having me very well We're here at the American Dairy Science Association meetings where we've been interviewing students and talking about the research that they've been uh, conducting over the last uh, year or so. Um, with us today is Dr. Tom Overton. Tom, uh, you're not a student anymore. I am not a student. But uh, Allison uh, Kerwin was the, the young lady that um, did the research. Now we're going to be reviewing three separate abstracts that uh, Allison worked on. Uh, first, uh, tell us why Allison's not here. So Allison had her uh, second little one, second baby, back in the wintertime, and so nice. she's uh, kind of finishing up her maternity leave. She's been taking that kind of in phases and decided that maybe uh, Kansas City and 100-degree uh, temperatures with a, with a six-month-old uh, yeah, wasn't decision. really the great plan, so it probably makes sense. Yeah, congratulations, uh, Allison. I wish you could be here. Uh, Tom, we've got three abstracts that we've kind of lumped together. We're going to talk about those. Can you kind of give us an overview of, of what they were? Yeah, so Allison for her PhD conducted, uh, uh, you know, one of the, I would think, probably the largest uh, scope transition cow management studies in commercial farms that's really been done. 72 herds uh, in New York and Vermont, uh, you know, visited larger freestyle dairies. She visited each dairy uh, 
four times, and as she likes to remind me, drove about 58,000 miles uh, in the course of, uh, of, of doing the data collection for the study. So it's a large study, a lot of data, and uh, we're just we're starting to roll it out, not only within Journal of Dairy Science, but also obviously here at, here at the meetings. Yeah, excellent. Now, Tom, I usually have one co-host that joins me uh, for these podcasts today. For somebody with your level of expertise, I had to have two. So with me, I've got Dr. Marco Zanobi and Dr. Jeff Elliott. And I talked about a lot of data to go through. I'm going to leave it to these guys to kind of dig into the data with you. So, gentlemen. So, actually, the first question I want to ask goes back a few years, maybe to grad school days. I want to know why you knocked my dog's tooth out. Yeah. Yeah, I really feel badly about that. We were roughhousing a little bit, and uh, and I do feel bad for Dutch. Yeah, you know, that was his name. He's quite a I still quite remember a dog. the tooth just flying away. Yeah, I remember other things in graduate school, too, if you'd like to talk about those. Or no, we need to skip those stories. <laughs> okay. What was the idea behind this big project? Why you wanted to do this? I mean, what, what is the story behind it? Yeah, so, so going back into the kind of the 2005 to 2008 time frame, uh, we did a large study with Daryl Mitem. Daryl Mitem was the lead at Cornell. Our group was collaborative on it and also very involved in which we we looked at 100 herds, uh, looked at relationships of, of NEFAs and blood ketones with outcomes on, on dairies. Um, and so we had some nice data from that data set that really, or results anyway, that kind of provided the basis for how we do cow and herd level uh, NEFA and blood ketone testing these days. But one of the things we realized at the time is we really didn't do a very good job or a very thorough job of characterizing all the nutritional and non-nutritional factors that can contribute to herd level success. And so, you know, we really wanted to take it to take this opportunity to do a much more in-depth characterization of those factors. And so, you know, Allison, uh, along with our collaborators, Buzz Burhands and, and Daryl Mitem again in this case, as primary collaborators, we were really focused on what we wanted to try to try to collect. Um, you know, both from the standpoint of nutritional strategies of herds, but also uh, the various uh, things that we know at the at the pen level and at the herd level, you know, contribute on the non-nutritional side, you know, to, to outcomes. And I think you know we have a much more we're much more sensitized to those relationships now than we were then. And so that was that was kind of how the study was born was was an attempt to do a much more thorough job and then try to relate some of those uh, management practices or other characteristics at the herd level you know, to our outcomes and also to productive productivity and, and reproductive function and, and herd health. Okay. So can you share with that the main result, the main important yeah. result from this? Yeah. So I, th I think there's there's a, a few different things to, to share. Um, you know, two of the papers are now published in Journal of Dairy Science. So we've published now the, the data set, right? So people can see, you know, really the, you know, what the characteristics of the herds were in all these different areas. Um, we published the second paper, those are all now available, uh, where we looked at, at, again, you know, kind of covering some of the same area that we did before relative to relationships of things like blood nephes and ketones with, with our, our or outcomes of interest, and you know, results were overall were quite similar to the to the previous work, and so um, so that part, you know, we, we feel good about that, that the recommendations we've been making for the industry kind of still hold. The one unique part of it was we actually looked at uh, inflammatory markers, especially haptoglobin as a marker of inflammation, you know, in those cows. Um, in the data set and you know probably not of surprise to people you know we we associated and again these are all associative things these are epi, epidemiological studies you know we associated uh, higher levels of haptoglobin uh, postpartum as a marker of systemic inflammation with uh, with more disease 
you know, with, with poor milk production or with, with poor reproductive performance. So that kind of extends that data again, adds to the to the to our growing knowledge of, of inflammation in that postpartum cow and, and what it might mean uh, at the herd level. So, so Tom, on that, the result was high forage resulted in higher levels of haptoglobin, I believe. Well, I think it, it depended, right? I mean, there was there was some of that again with the epi data sets. They're always, you know, they're always a little bit of, you know, you always got to think through the interpretation. I mean, some of the things I think, with especially with the nutritional side, are, you know, are very consistent with the control with the literature as we know it, right? So, cows fed a, a more, a, you know, controlled energy diet, a lower energy diet, uh, you know, during the, the prepartum period had lower blood ketones, you know, postpartum, and that fits our, our knowledge from the control literature. You know, the haptoglobin story I think is still a bit interesting in terms of not really fully understanding how diet can affect that and so both prepartum diet and also postpartum diet I think there's parts of it that are clearer than others uh, but there's still more to and that's and that's where my curiosity comes in Um, actually on Friday Marcos and I had a webinar with a customer and uh, not related to this abstract at all but he mentioned he says haptoglobin the correct or is it the most accurate biomarker that we need to be using or is it a cytokine or another messenger yeah. So I think that area is still kind of wide open, honestly. Um, you know, we you know, we chose haptoglobin in part because we had previous data uh, that we'd done at the commercial farm level where we were able to, you know, in a smaller data set, but still, you know, 400 cows worth of data associate uh, elevated haptoglobin with negative relationships with outcomes. That was some of Julie Huzzy's uh, PhD work in our, in our program. You know, there's other markers. There's serum amyloid A, another acute phase protein. Uh, you know, both those tend to elevate in... You know, in, in especially with ruminal or gut type inflammatory processes, but again, they'll. You know, I think the thing with acute phase proteins is they'll elevate. You know, with any kind of systemic in, in inflammation. You know, cytokines. Um, you know, I, I think those are all. Um, you know, those are all on the table relative to how we might. Um, you know, how we might think about relationships with outcomes and things like that. And again, that's associations. I think one of the things that, that gets a little bit. You know, you, you know, it's it's. You know, if you, if you lock a if you lock a, a bunch of immunologists or others in a room for, for 24 hours and tell them to come up with one marker to measure immune function, right, uh, they'll probably debate it for 24 hours and probably still won't come out with any. I mean, right. again, yeah. and, I, and I always say, I don't say it to, to make any, uh, to make fun of anything, other than just, and just to, to convey it's, it's a complex area, right, and, and complex to interpret. And so I think, you know, we may end up with a suite of markers at the end of the day that we may look at some of these things for, for something that gives us a little different look than we get out of you know our energy related analytes like you know NEFAs and ketones and things like yeah. that. So to change gears a little bit to go to the more nutritional strategies. Yep. What did the findings here tell us about feeding starch relative in the close up period as well as the fresh cow period? Because you have done a lot of work there over yep. the years. Yep. Um, and it's always been intriguing. You know, our, our data set in this case, actually, that one was one of the clearer things in that, uh, you know, cows fed the, the higher starch diet post-calving anyway, did have lower blood ketones. Um, and so, you know, that would appear to be an advantage. One of the things that was, you know, was also interesting is that, uh, you know, we did not pick up any clear relationships with milk yield, right, for any of the kind of nutritional strategies we looked at. I don't think that that means that it doesn't matter. Right, I think I, that's probably a bit of an oversimplification. I was going to ask that because yeah, that's the way it comes across. But I know I, no, I realize yeah. that, right? But I mean, at, at the same time, I, I think there's, you know, I think one of the things to, to, to remember here, especially when you're looking at epidemiological data set, is you know we're, we're making choices to, in terms of how we look at the data, okay, and across a range of, of outcomes. Now, if we do a controlled research study, right, I can compare this level starch 
at this level starch and be very far be far apart okay and be very different diets well that's not the real world right here you're looking at and I'm not gonna say a continuum because we're trying to target lower or higher in certain cases but you know you know commercial farm diets don't vary as much as what you know what you're going to come up right. with in a, in a control research situation, right? If Marcos here were to do a controlled study, you know he's going to really look at look to define some treatment differences and, and do that, right? Yeah. So, um, so I think that's part of it, right? So, so again, I, I, I certainly don't think it doesn't matter. We have, we clearly have enough, you know, information from the controlled research, right? And of course, you guys have meta-analyses on, you know, on choline there's meta-analyses on DK not put all back on meta-analyses right but that clearly show you know production relationships with with some of these nutritional strategies okay and so um, so again you know we, we, we do these epi studies in part to you know extend the control research knowledge right or try to see how it plays out in the real world but then also generate uh, hypotheses that we might go back, go back and test so I will go back to the close-up then. Mm -hmm. a simple question. So there was um, no association, although, uh, of NDF level with any of the outcomes. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was an association with meal yield and probably break check, break, uh, right, with um, Penn State particle uh, separator. So how we can interpret that data? Sorting yeah, so so again, I think that's one of the areas where you know that's that's obviously of interest now. You know, far off, right? So I know you're talking close up, right? But far off, far there was a positive association with, you know, more more in the top screen, leading to better outcomes in general. I think that to me, I, I wonder if that represents actually represents more forage level feeding level in the diet, right? One of the things you got to be careful of in these studies is is you know things move together, right? So you have more forage in that diet, we have more probably in the top screen. You know, we feed less grain in those diets, right? Typically, so and again, the, you know, if you do the math, you know, the the, the magnitude relationships actually is is you know is not huge, right? So you keep that in mind. You know, close up. Um, you know, again, you know, you're you're still looking at relatively small small differences there at the end of the day, and so I think you got to keep that in mind. I think you know, for us, we still like. Um, you know, still like if you're looking at particle size of chopped straw or hay, you know, that one-third, one-third, one-third in each of the three sections, or yeah, the bottom two together for, for a third in the four-section Penn State box. Um, 10 to 20% in the top screen, uh, less than 40% of the pan in the bottom two. For close-up diets, I think you can be a little coarser with VAR-OFF diets and be okay just because you don't have, um, you know, just because you don't have the same uh, level of grain in the diet. Right. So. Okay. Um, and of course, you know, I think we all know feeding management of these diets, you know, is is also really important, right, from a particle size and moisture standpoint. So moving to the fresh pen, yep, there is a nice, I think, that association with uh, NDF and digestible NDF and effective mm -hmm. UNDF yep. with PREC. Uh, yep. So that's pretty important, I think. Do you have any sweet spot where you want to be in the fresh? Yeah. Pen? So, so one of the things. Um, so you know you're you're kind of quoting some of the digestibility. To, so the PEUND, you know, the, yep. the undigested NDF content of the, of the diets, uh, you know the the physically effective. And so basically, as those increased, we saw lower milk yields in lactation. To me, that just comes mostly comes back to just forage quality, right? So if you think about poor quality forages, right, they're going to have more UNDF. They have more PEUNDF, and so for feeding poor quality for or less, you know, poor quality forages, from a digestibility standpoint, we're going to have you know likely less milk yield there. 
in terms of recommendations, I think one of the things that's that's tricky um, on that and why we haven't really published a lot of recommendations on, on the UNDF or PEUNDF levels and diets and we've done some of this work separately um, has been the, the models aren't always aren't always fully seeded in terms of that data, especially for the non-forage fiber sources that might be in diets. And so so what I tend to tell people is, you know, if you if you if you typical UNDF 240 level in a lactating diet, high cow diet, for example, is around seven. You know, you might run that fresh cow diet if you have one up around eight, maybe a little more. But I, I think any more than that's probably going to hold those cows back a bit because we have we have had definite experience in our research group trying to do work in this area where, you know, we, we you know we think some additional fiber for these fresh cows is, is beneficial, but it's very clear that you could hold them back if you go too far with that, and especially if you go for longer, I think that about 10 to 14 days with a higher fiber strategy, especially higher forage fiber strategy in fresh cows. So that's something I think we're still kind of wrestling around with, um, but I think it's got implications for how we feed fresh cows going forward. Tom, we're shoving a lot of data into a uh, short period of time. If you were to summarize it for the audience, uh, what would be just uh, one or two key takeaways from the research so far? And then how do you see going forward with the research? Yeah, so thanks, Scott. So I, you know, I think, you know, again, I, I, from, a, from a big, big, broad standpoint, um, you know, both, I think both nutritional and non-nutritional factors come into play when we're looking at, at both uh, transition cow outcomes where there's disease or disorders, uh, to some extent repro, and, and obviously milk production, although again, you know, we didn't see, at least nutritionally, you know, in the, in the big broad brush stroke, didn't see a lot of relationships there. Um, I think our data support, um, you know, support the, the efforts of the industry to decrease stocking density. You know, especially the feed muck in these in these uh, fresh groups and also pre-fresh groups. Um, I think in, in general, you know, our data also support that you know heifers, uh, you know, will, will do better if they're not commingled um, in this time frame. And you know, I think also you know there are certain things on, on uh, for example, group changes before calving. You know, you know herds that herds that, that move cows less. In other words, you know, no more than like a, a move to a close up and then a move to calve. You know, that appeared to be a better strategy. You know, in the data set than than herds that move cows more frequently than that. You know, at, you know, added an additional move or two. Um, and I think that you know, I think some of those things. You know, are consistent with what we think we see when we, when, we, when we work with herds out in the industry, right? We see that herds that streamline those things, herds that pay attention to stocking density, um, you know, herds that, uh, um, it, you know, herds that uh, don't, those cows don't linger too long in the calving pen, you know, um, I think I think that, that plays with what we see, okay? Um, so. so, Tom, a lot of those things, maybe the guys around this table take as common sense now. We've talked about it more water, don't let them linger, mm -hmm. plenty of space. But those farms that aren't, that aren't doing that, is there a reason, how do we get them to make those simple, I guess I'm calling them simple adjustments, I don't know if they are, maybe they're not on those farms. Well, I think again, I, I think, you know, I think, I mean, I think they just need to keep hearing it, right? I think from, from as many sources as possible, right? And we've been doing that, right? I mean, it feels like we've been doing that. You know, I think that, that that comes back into play. Um, you know, more information that continues to support, you know, or the recommendations that a lot of us make, um, I think is helpful. Um, you know, and, and again, I think it's just part of that constant coaching that, that always happens in the dairy industry, whether it comes from, you know, from when you guys are working with farms, for example, right, with what you do, you know, to nutritionists, veterinarians, you know, others out in the industry, extension making, you know, directly interfacing with herds. 
Tom, thanks for stopping by here at the Real Science Exchange. It's always great to see you. No, pleasure. Look forward to seeing you next time. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Scott. And we're back here at the American Dairy Science Association meetings. Uh, this session has a couple themes. One is Brazil. We have two guests from Brazil. And pro the, the predominant theme is Virginia Tech. So we've got uh, three people here that spent some time at Virginia Tech. So that's, that's kind of cool. Um, we're going to be reviewing a paper uh, by Yumi uh, Taguti. Did Taguti, I say that yeah. close enough? All right, yeah, very well. <laughs> and uh, she's an undergraduate. She's visiting from Brazil. And uh, she did a, she presented a paper, was it a paper or a poster? Uh, it's a poster today, yeah. Yep. Called Linking Amino Acids to Milk Fat Synthesis. So, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got the idea for this research? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I think the first thing we need to understand uh, is uh, how milk fat is important. Because milk fat uh, is what drives the milk price uh, in the industry. Uh, so knowing that, uh, knowing that uh, uh, the milk fat yield in cows supplemented with amino acid has changed, uh, we 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 had like in vitro studies, previous in vitro studies about uh, how the mTOR pathway uh, acts behind this milk fat yield t changes, and uh, this was realized that this was this was conducted and mammary epithelial cells uh, in superphysiological levels. So what our goal now is to understand how is the relationship between the essential amino acids and the milk fat, uh, milk fat synthesis and uh, physiological levels. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And I see you brought a guest with you today. Is this your professor? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, Isabel Teixeira. Perfect. Close. <laughs> All right. Now, yeah, you've got that confusing me just a little bit because um, you were you're no longer at Virginia Tech. You're currently at the University of Idaho, but you were there uh, uh, doing a sabbatical. Yeah, it was uh, in 2017. Uh, I went. I was a faculty in Brazil at UNESP, and then I went to do a sabbatical at Virginia Tech. Okay. We, we are we were discussing Mark Hennigan and I about the project, the possibilities. Uh, we came out with this idea to, to evaluate the role of the essential amino acids on the milk fat synthesis. And the very first uh, experiment study in this sense with in our group, I, our group, I mean, my group and Mark Hennigan's group, yeah. uh, wasn't that time. Yeah. So it was nice and we could figure out some amino acids that were playing a role uh, because we were omitting amino acids uh, on the media for uh, on the epithelial cells, uh, mammary gland. Uh, so, and we could see that when we were omitting some amino acids, it really shut the de novo milk fat synthesis. Ah. So, I stayed uh, two years, uh, it was a, a two year sabbatical. I went back to Brazil, and currently I, uh, I'm at the University of Idaho. I just joined University of Idaho. Okay. So that's a long story, and are joining me through those all changes. Yeah, so. well, we're happy to have you here with us today here at the Real Science Exchange. Uh, my co-host, Carrie Estes, once again. You're again. Yeah, you've been here <laughs> your third time. So I'll hand it off to you. I think you got some questions. Okay. Yes. Um, so I'm not an expert at all in cell culture. I'm just going to set that up right now. But um, I was curious about the stage of lactation that you took the mammary uh, tissue from. What stage were they at? 
Uh, okay, so I think the most important thing that we uh, considered when we were taking the the tissue samples was to get from a cow that has uh, is a high producer animal, uh, but I think mostly in the mid lactation. How, how did was, you define high producing? I'm sorry. High producing for uh, in the farm that we are working currently, high producing will be um, uh, around 50 kilograms of milk per day. That's high. During two milkings. Uh, but I was not involved in the cell isolation process because I was not here yet. Uh, I think maybe Isabel can tell you more about uh, this, this part of the process. Yeah, so we did some uh, because we had some papers back uh, in that time and I think you'll join some. I, I sort of overlap with Carrie mm -hmm. at Virginia yeah. Tech. So anyway, uh, we, every time you were reading papers about uh, isolating cells, uh, it was not very clear. So we were able to establish uh, at uh, Hennigan's lab a way for isolating cells. So I started doing that uh, with, uh, with biopsy samples. That was nice. That's why we, could, we were able to get like middle lactation uh, because we want to be sure that the, the cells were able to secrete milk components because that was important for us and also for other studies that Mark were uh, running at, um, at the lab at that time. Uh, after that, after I went back to Brazil, Alex Burby uh, also uh, refined a little bit more the technique. But uh, just being uh, direct to your question, so mid-lactation is good, and we want to be sure that the, the, that, so, that cells are secreting milk components. Yeah, yeah, yeah it becomes pretty important then. It is. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. sure. Yeah. And uh, with those cells, we were able to um, to check that they were secreting protein and fat. Okay. So we could address different questions with the same cells. Mm -hmm. So then once you have your cells and you're applying the treatment, how long do you let that treatment work on those cells before you end up taking your sample? So uh, what we did, uh, we started with 23 hours of starvation on the cells so they would not get they would not get overloads and after that we applied the treatments for four hours so uh, we were using uh, labeled acetate as a tracer c13 so the te uh, the, t uh, the period that we need to let the treatment stays in the cells is more about uh, it's related to the period that the acid uh, that the acetate enrichment increases and it reaches the stability so uh, Isabel conducted a study before to to know uh, when was the the increase uh, when was the best time the enrichment of C13. So after this research, we could choose four hours for the treatments. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it depends on the kind of questions, right, Carrie? Because for example, if you are doing Western with those cells, we cannot go if you want to do uh, to check the phosphorylation. Generally, we, we go up to one hour and a half maximum because we want to see the phosphorylation that is a very uh, fast process. Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the isotope, uh, because we want to see the enrichment uh, of the cells of, uh, with C13, we want to get uh, with, is still up the curve, not reaching uh, the plateau. Mm -hmm. So uh, we chose uh, four hours. Generally, that's what we're getting the best. 
uh, but Yumi also used uh, with a, a second trial that she's running uh, right now at Virginia Tech. We just figured out that perhaps it would be uh, better to have the cells exposed a little bit more. So she uh, exposed the cells to six hours, right? Yeah, six hours this time. Yeah. So as we are, because sometimes just can get confused, it's, is it enough time? Because we are focusing on mechanism and really understand the mechanism. So we need to address uh, those questions uh, accordingly. That's why we are using a short period of time. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, makes sense, makes sense. So you did a lot of this work, very interesting work in vitro. What about in vivo? Do you guys have plans to move this into the cow? Yeah, we do. So uh, the first, the first, we had two in vitro experiments until now. Uh, in the first one, we were analyzing the individual effects of HM, essential amino acids. Uh, in the second one, we could see we, we are still, it's still a, an ongoing experiment, uh, but we can see the different levels and interactions between uh, the amino acids that show most effect in the first experiment. And after that, we are moving on now for the third experiment that I'm doing here. Uh, it's an animal trial. So in this case, we are infusing the animals with the amino acids and trying to, trying to get an effect on the milk fat yield. So we still don't have any results about that, but yeah. It's in the works. Yeah, it's Stay working. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, very good. So you don't have any results on that specific, but uh, some of the previous results, can you talk a little bit about those and the conclusions that you may have come to? From the animal trial? Yes. So, no, no, well, I was even thinking the, the, the whole series of trials that we've done so far. Oh, the whole series yeah. of trials? Yeah, of course. Uh, so during the trials, uh, seeing the results, we could see that uh, omitting any of the amino acids, when we remove any of them, uh, we do have an, an effect on the milk fat yields. Uh, it does change something. And we could also see that uh, some of the amino acids that I found that had the most effect on the milk fat yields uh, was the same that Isabel found on her previous, previous research with super physiological levels. Uh, for me, I found uh, lysine, methionine, isoleucine, and leucine being the ones that affect the most the milk fat yield. Okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's what we got as big results right now. So uh, those are the amino acids that we're using in the second experiment. Uh, to analyze the different levels and the different interactions between them. Very well, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, and also the ones that we're going to use on the animal trial, right? Yeah, they're the same. The yeah. Trial. And the idea is to see it because at this point we already know that just addressing one amino acid time is not the best way because they interact, right? So uh, she's uh, designing the experiment in a way that we can see the interactions uh, among the amino acids and see the amino acids as a group, not only as an individual amino acids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So going forward, what do you see as maybe some practical impl implications and then maybe talk about some additional research that's gonna be needed? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think some practical, practical implications. Uh, I think this knowledge is important that maybe in the future we can manipulate a diet uh, in terms of amino acids to try to increase the milk fat yields. Uh, that would be really interesting for the producers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the, the future research, we still need to explore more uh, how the amino acids are interacting and which amino acids we should work together. Uh, which should be the groups so, so we have better results. 
Very well. Speaking of the future, uh, what's your future hold? I, you're now uh, uh, a visiting student here at Virginia Tech. What's next for you, me? You're putting me in a hard place here. <laughs> okay, so I think my future, uh, I really want to go to grad school. Um, I've, I think about teaching in the future. So, yeah, I'm... I have an opportunity now, and I'm still open for opportunities. Yeah, that's it, I think. <laughs> okay, very well. So anybody out there listening, Yumi's open to other opportunities. Very well. <laughs> and I'm in the line. No, I she already has an invitation no, for our grad school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's my, that's my mango. I'll be there. <laughs> you know, I'm convincing her to go back to Brazil, finish the vet school, and then come back to do the PhD at the University of Idaho. And I'm, I'm willing to, yeah. There you go. All right. <laughs> Well, listen, I've really enjoyed uh, the discussion this afternoon. Isabel, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Umi, it's been great, uh, and all the best to you. Good luck. Well, whatever thank you, you so decide. Much. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Welcome back to the American Dairy Science Association meetings. We're here this afternoon with Dr. Tom Overton. Tom, you're standing in for Dr. Allison Kerwin, who uh, received her PhD last winter, but recently had a child. So she's not able to join us, but you're, you're here instead, and uh, we hope you can do a fine job for her. Well, I won't do as well as Allison could, but I'll do my best. Yep. Tom, I brought two co-hosts with me today, Dr. Pete Morrow. Uh, Pete, give us a little bit of background about yourself. Sure, Scott. My name is Pete Morrow. I uh, joined Balchem here in the past uh, six months. Uh, uh, I've just started my uh, career in the last few years in the industry side after uh, spending 16 years as a private practice uh, dairy veterinarian. And Jeff, give us a little background on yourself. Well, I think you got a little background earlier, but uh, I've been with Balchem now for 12 years, technical service, traveling domestically as well as globally. All right, very well. Tom, the uh, paper that was uh, that we're going to be reviewing is titled Relationship of Blood-Based Indices of Liver Health During the Transition Period with Performance and Health. Um, what can you tell us about the, the research project? Yeah, so we got into this a few years ago. So, um, um, you know, some researchers in Italy, uh, Bertoni and Trevisi, a number of years ago, created what they called a, a liver functionality index. And so that was based on... Um, you know, things you can measure in the blood like bilirubin, um, you know, cholesterol and albumin, which represent different aspects of, of either acute phase response or liver metabolism. Um, and in, in smaller data sets, they, they related it pretty nicely with, you know, in other words, cows with poor liver functionality index, you know, had, um, you know, had poor outcomes anyway in transition. Um, you know, the one limitation that they, that from my perspective, that they had was, you know, and what they developed, they required, you know, sampling the same cows at like two and 28 days in milk. And so from the standpoint of our approach where we want to try to, you know, determine and develop, you know, markers that the industry can use, you know, there's kind of some limits of practicality in terms of, of, of doing, you know, two time points in the same cow, you know, at that time frame. So, our, our, you know, we really wanted to see if we could adapt it to a one time point type index. Pretty well. I'll toss it over to Jeff and Pete dig into some of the data. I was just wondering if you think that this could be a good predictive measure possibly in the future to uh, uh, know which cows maybe we should be looking after or we think that maybe they would we know they're going to be successful based on these indices. Yeah so I think, I think that's a great question I mean I you know one of the things at least it, 
at this point in time, amongst multiple data sets, I mean, you know, at least the, you know, related to cow level outcomes, um, you know, we, we do see uh, with our single time point type approach, and we've looked at a, a few different ways now, um, that that is even just a one time point approach is associated with, you know, poor outcomes, whether it's health, production, you know, et cetera, during, during transition. Um, you know, I had a grad student here with a, with a poster, uh, Tate Nelson, a PhD student of mine. Um, you know, he actually looked at different time points and then compared to kind of the liver functionality index uh, time point. And actually two days in milk was actually not a bad time to, to, to make that measurement. So I think, you know, that may, that may offer the opportunity to at least identify early cows that may be at more risk for poor outcomes. You know, I think we're a ways away, though, from being a place where we're going to use it to say, okay, we're going to identify individual cows that need treatment. I think for the moment, anyway, um, I feel a little more comfortable with it as a herd level type assessment where we might might use it within a herd, you know, kind of as a barometer for how things are going. Again, it's still kind of a relative measure. And so I think, you know, we can add to the data set. Um, but I think there's opportunity there. And I think it gives a little different look than what we see with some of our traditional markers like, you know, NEFAs and ketones. So, so Tom, why do you think right now there's a limit to it being a cow marker first. Well, I just think, so So again, right, uh, you know, these epi studies are all about more risk versus less risk, right? So, I mean, uh, and when, you, when you go over a certain threshold or things like that, I think, um, you know, again, as a, as a relative marker, there's, you know, unlike with things like nephes and ketones, right, where we can say, okay, that cow with, you know, 1.2 millimolar blood ketone, but BHBA or more, right? She's at more risk for things. We don't have a single value that we can use at the herd level to be able to say, okay, she's at, you know, in, in general, it's more of a, you know, more of a, a relative type basis, right? So, so it's a little less handy from the standpoint of being able to interpret for individual cow use at this time, I think. So if, let's pretend we can find that one biomarker, haptoglobin, whatever it may be. Yep. And we have a number for it. What's it going to take to be able to do that on a daily basis, like we do, like BHBA? Yeah, I think I think one of the things too. I mean, this you know, you look at analytes for at least three markers anyway. At least as we as Bretonian and Trevisi, but then us, you know, incorporated into the into this uh, index. Um, you know, you're looking at you're looking at oh, 16 to 20 dollars a sample, right, for analysis. So we're not going to be running this like you do BHBAs right. at the herd level, right? Yeah. I think that's that's pretty clear, you know. But again, as a periodic evaluator of of you know how things are going, right, from a from a from a health standpoint, again, give you a little different look than the energy related markers. I think there's there there is some opportunity here going forward. Um, you know, we're also you know collaborators also that are looking at. Uh, Developing some multiplex assays involving not only acute phase proteins but but cytokines as well. So there's different directions here we can go. But you know, so far this this uh, you know this liver health index seems to hold up you know reasonably well. Compares reasonably well with with what Bertonian and Trevisi did, and we've we've again looked at it now in several different larger data sets, and, and it holds. If you had the opportunity, or which uh, additional acute phase protein would you add to a uh, indice like this to maybe uh, explore other options, maybe more whether it be sensitivity or specificity uh, for this type of test. Yeah, I think you know again, you know our, our previous work that we've already talked about with haptoglobin, right? I mean that one's that one's pretty well established as you know you know there's probably no perfect marker, right? But that's probably reasonably well established anyway. The relation its relationships with with, the, with downstream outcomes. Well, what we haven't done it's, it'd be interesting to do that actually is try to start to look at some of these things within the same within the same data set to see if we enhance, as you indicate, right, enhance the, 
you know, sensitivity, specificity, predictive value, you know, all those things that, that we want accuracy on you know, when it comes to, to diagnostic tests. Would you think you, this uh, system could be used as a scorecard for your transition management program? I think potentially, right? I mean, it, you know, so so one of the things that that uh, you know, to some extent, you're you're kind of comparing it to population. So you're comparing either within a herd against the against itself, right? Or potentially over time, you know, if we have more larger numbers of of, of data out there, larger samples, larger herd number of herds collected, you can kind of look at where where your herd stands relative to maybe others, right? And so. Um, so I do think there's opportunity there to, to look at some of these things. You know, I was going to be careful to, to benchmark too heavily, right? But at the same time, I think there's there's value in having some reference uh, numbers and then comparing to them. Yeah, interesting information, gentlemen. Uh, Tom, any final words that you'd like to leave with the audience? Yeah, no. Again, you know, it's it's fun here at meetings. Our first uh, first in-person meetings in three years, and so it's fun yeah. for our students to to get back out here. I've got three students here that uh, have uh, never attended an ADSA meeting before, and they all have posters, and so it's a great opportunity for them to 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 get some exposure. And thanks to y'all for 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 doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping us out. Thanks. See you next Pleasure. time. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by the Keisher line of chelated minerals. Keysure and Keysure Plus deliver proven and consistent bioavailability to maximize performance and a no-frills pricing approach for greater profitability. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. Welcome back to the American Dairy Science Association meetings. We're here once again with Tanya France from Cornell University and Joe McFadden, her advisor at Cornell University. Um, Tanya, you have a presentation tomorrow called, uh, the title is, Effects of Feeding Rumen Protected Methionine and Calcium Salts Enriched with Omega-3 Fatty Acids on Lactation in Periparturient Dairy Cows. Joe, I understand that uh, this was your idea, this was the genesis. Can, can you talk us to how you came up with the idea? Yeah, no, no problem. Um, you know, there's plenty of evidence to show that rumen protective methionine feeding in transition cows has a lot of beneficial effects on uh, milk production and metabolic health. You know, it acts as uh, an antioxidant um, that, that, that um, enhances uh, something called the transsulfuration pathway that is really important to help cows uh, mitigate the negative effects of oxidative stress and has this uh, ability to reduce inflammation. So that's really important. Uh, as a, a nutritional therapy for transition dairy cows. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially very long chain omega-3 fatty acids, like those that come from fish oil, a little less work focused on their effects in transition cows. Uh, but again, they're anti-inflammatory, uh, generally recognized as being health-promoting uh, sort of uh, components of the diet. And so we want to look at the synergy between those. Um, there are some hypotheses related to liver function and, and how they can work together, both methionine and omega-3 fatty acids, to really optimize liver function. And so that's one of the things we wanted to explore uh, with, this, with this study. All right, very well. My co-host for this session is Dr. Ken Sanderson. Ken works for Balchem. Ken, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, hi, Scott. Um, I'm uh, with the company now, actually, for the second time. I've been in the industry for um, 40 years, but uh, the last three back with Balchem in the role of uh, global business development, and I work on a number of different projects, including some of our research work as well. Oh, very well. Have you met Tanya yet? I have met Tanya. Right. We had a chance to listen to Tanya's presentations yesterday. All right. Yeah, excellent. 
Well, Tanya, why don't you tell us a little bit about the research? Yeah, so um, this study was looking at basically the co-supplementation of omega-3 omega fatty acids and um, rheumaprotective methionine, uh, and we started feeding um, 79 Holstein dairy cows uh, at about three weeks prepartum, and uh, we followed them through to about uh, four weeks postpartum, um, co-supplementing them, and during this time we did um, weekly blood sampling, um, milk sampling, liver biopsies um, three times for each cow, and um, really wanted to measure um, the effects of the combination supplementation of the um, rumen protective methionine and omega-3 fatty acids. Um, the other three treatments were uh, without both of those or with just um, adequate methionine or with just um, omega-3 fatty acids. You know, one thing I'll add to that is that, you know, typically in the field, you're not feeding a lot of added fats to close-up diets. Um, but we did do that in this particular study. Total fatty acids in the diet were 1.5% of ration dry matter from close-up period through uh, early lactation. Um, you know, there's a lot of science that we're thinking about in terms of why, why we did that. Um, and, you know, one of the things that were sort of a secondary objective of the study is the is to investigate the effects of uh, these nutrients, methionine and omega-3 fatty acids, on sort of the, the microbial um, sort of um, composition. Um, and doing that with some fecal samples uh, is what we're going to do, and how that might relate to changes in gut permeability. So that's sort of a long-term objective that's not presented here at today's conference, but it's something that's on our mind, and that's sort of why we went with a longer sort of feeding uh, duration uh, for the, the supplemental fats. You know, the production outcomes were really strong. I'll let, I'll let Tanya talk about that. Um, but, um, you know, it didn't hurt that we added it to the close-up diet. So one of, one of the questions that actually um, was shared with me about this abstract was uh, related to the background of the other amino acids in the diet. So can you tell us anything about the lysine content, for example, in the diets? Or do you have some? Oh, you want to point to me? Yeah. Uh, you said you'd answer this uh, one. Okay. <laughs> All right, yeah, so lysine was kept fixed um, as a, right around 7.1% of MP. Um, and so we did put some room protected lysine products in, in the diets to make sure that that uh, was sort of constant across all the treatments. Uh, when you look at the, you know, lysine to methionine ratio on the methionine deficient diets, that was closer to about 3 to 1. Um, and on the diets that had the supplemental methionine in it, um, that ratio went to about, I believe it was like about 2.5 to 1. Excellent. So there's been a fair amount of uh, previous work looking at methionine and uh, showing um, increases in dry matter intake uh, in the in the uh, postpartum period. And I guess we're curious about the mechanism and what you propose is the mechanism around that change in intake. Really, we think it is more driven by the increase in milk production, which would influence um, their dry matter intake postpartum. Uh, so feeding um, adequate methionine is typically gonna help um, partition more nutrients towards um, milk protein synthesis or just yield in general. Uh, so that being said, those increases in dry matter intake that you're typically seeing, would, we're, we're suspecting it's due to uh, increases in milk production from feeding room and methionine. 
Yeah, the only thing I'll add there is to sort of say that, and if you look at the data, and you actually, we actually, whenever we get it published, um, or at this, if you look at the abstract, perhaps I forget what we wrote. Um, the, the diets that were lowest in dry matter intake were the diets that were inadequate in methionine and unsupplemented with calcium salts containing omega threes, uh, meaning that the diets th that had omega three fatty acids in it, um, uh, but uh, no methionine, they actually had greater intakes than those that were completely deficient in both nutrients. Um, so I don't, I think, I think I know what you're talking about, that there is this sort of consistency that methionine feeding does increase um, uh, dry matter intake, but uh, take that with a grain of salt, knowing that that was only observed in the completely deficient diet, so both, both um, nutrients. Um, yeah. Okay, excellent. You've got a really significant production response, and I guess I, w I want to hear a little bit about um, the synergy that you saw between the methionine and the omega-3 and a proposed hypothesis around why. Why the synergy? So I think that, um, and like Dr. McFadden said earlier with um, evidence of uh, improved anti-inflammatory responses with omega-3 fatty acids. I think there's something there with um, adding the omega-3s, kind of mitigating this inflammatory response in early lactation, um, kind of driving some of these improved production performances. So just having an overall healthier cow, um, healthier liver function uh, that could kind of drive uh, utilization of nutrients in general towards um, higher production responses. Uh, yeah, the only thing I'll say to that is that, and look at actual milk yield. Um, there was no effect on milk yield. It, it really came down to energy corrected milk yield. And so the co-supplementation, that's where we saw the maximum benefit. It was over five and a half kilos, I believe, mm -hmm. right around there in energy corrected milk and fat corrected milk. I'll say that just supplementing omega-3 fatty acids um, or just methionine also had significant gains in energy corrected milk yield. Um, so it was really the omega-3 fatty acids surprisingly driving milk fat production uh, and, the, and the amino acid uh, methionine driving milk protein production. And so those two together sort of really op optimized the response. Um, now there's certainly a health component and we're, this study's ongoing in a way because we're still doing a lot of the sample analyses. Um, she definitely mentioned the, this sort of inflammatory component that we want to explore. But we're also exploring liver function one of the other abstracts she was looking at was liver functionality, sort of measuring it using an indirect approach. And co-supplementation of the four treatments had the best um, estimated liver function. Um, and so we did, we got to dive a little bit deeper into that to better understand the biology. Yeah. Tony, as we kind of wrap this up, can you kind of give us a couple of key takeaways from the research and then where do you see it going from here? Yeah, so I guess one of the key takeaways I would say is um, people are kind of, uh, intimidated by uh, fish oil supplements and um, dairy cattle because there's been it's been shown to decre decrease uh, dry matter intake and those kinds of things and um, we were feeding at about uh, six to seven grams uh, per day uh, postpartum for EPA and DHA uh, and we saw these responses so um, I think that's kind of a stepping stone and uh, very long chain omega-3 fatty acid supplementing, uh, considering there is no uh, requirements or established feeding rates um, in dairy cow at, dairy cattle at the moment. 
Yeah, like this study was we're talking about adequacy of methionine because we we have some established requirements. When we think about omega-3 fatty acids and especially very long-chain omega-3 fatty acids like EPA and DHA and fish oil, it's sort of uncharted in terms of what in terms of the amount that we should be feeding. And I think this is at least a start in the right direction, and hopefully many more studies to come where we can tease that out. And because there are a variety of rumen protected forms of these uh, products on the market, calcium salts being one, but there's lipid encapsulated versions, there's versions with um, starch-resistant ma um, matrix, there's different types of encapsulation technologies that are out there, um, and so they're going to be available for farmers and nutritionists to use, and we need to know what how much to feed. And what really complicates it is that, I can get, I could talk about this forever, but <laughs> omega-3 fatty acids also include 18-3 alpha-linolenic, and that would be the most predominant alpha-linolenic uh, omega-3 fatty acid in the diet. Um, but we don't know the, the relative sort of efficacy of an 18-3 versus the, the EPA and DHA. And so there's a lot of science there that we need to figure out as well. All right. More research is needed. Yeah. Tanya, thanks for uh, joining us here today. You have a uh, very bright young lady. Your future is bright, and uh, we thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome back, everybody, to the American Dairy Science Association meetings. Joining me today is Dr. Jonas D'Souza. He's with uh, Purdue Agra. Agribusiness. Agribusiness, all right. And we've also then got Jair Perales Giron. He's a student at Michigan State University. And my co host today, Carrie Estes. Hello. Good to see you. Good to have you back. Jair, you're going to be uh, talking to us about, uh, was it a paper or a poster? No, it, it's a poster. We did a presentation did this a morning, so it was a good presentation. A lot of people came for asking questions, so yeah. I guess we are going to continue Super. answering some questions. Yep. So the title was Determining the Relative Metabolizable Methionine Content of Rumen Protected Products and Their Effects on Production Responses. So uh, give me an idea of the genesis or the inspiration for this trial. Yeah, I guess you can, you can, you can see this, this study as an idea to try to identify the bioavailability of four different products for making uh, decisions at an industrial level and as a company. So the idea was trying to use a methodology that is not that complex compared to other methodologies that has been developed before than this one and try to do it uh, as easy as possible for uh, doing um, for making those decisions okay and Jonas what was your role in this uh, study um, so at Purdue we we use a lot of uh, um, and give recommendations in terms of how how we drive milk fat and milk protein yield um, to the dairy industry and of course methionine is a big part of that uh, of those recommendations and and I can tell you every 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 time we see it, you know, you have these different methionine products in the market. So people ask, you know, what do you, what's the bioavailability? Do you think this number is really what it is or not? Um, so from our standpoint was, well, let's let's try to test, you know, um, an anniversary standard um, with with high producing animals. Um, what is the relative bioavailability of some of the products that are in the market? Okay. So that's what okay. we try to do. And how did you decide which products you were going to test? That's a good question. Um, so it has, when we start thinking about, um, we decide to choose, basically you have different encapsulations and protection methods today, right? So, so, so you have the pH sensitive polymers, you have the encapsulation with different fatty acids. So, you know, you're always um, 
concern about you know how you really determine the bioavailability in some of these different methods, different protection methods. Uh, so that was kind of the basis for us. Um, so we choose two pH sensitive uh, products and two that are uh, fat, basically fat coating uh, methods um, on protecting that. And also, you know, we want to use relevant brands in the market that, that people are talking, people are using. So in a commercial situation, we have relevance to to, to the end user, you know, that information. Right. Very well. And Jair, uh, what was the basic protocol? How'd you set the trial up? First, uh, we have to choose some uh, mid-lactation cows. So we did a preliminary uh, period. So we worked with 36 uh, Holstein uh, cows, and we have multis and print cows. So we selected them, and we, uh, and we, did, uh, we grouped them by uh, their uh, milk production during the during the pelling period, so we had uh, four uh, cows per uh, group because we did a Latin square design, and we have in total nine squares. So we selected them by the by the by, by the mean yield, and during that period, during the pelling period, we feed them a selenium uh, source for having a constant selenium flow to the mammary gland and assuring that the selenium was going to be the same for all the cows. Got it. Yeah. Very well. Carrie, it looks like you've got an Yes, question. I do. Yes. So as you know, feed and mixing stability, that's a pretty crucial piece for determining viability of any rumen protective product. So mm -hmm. did you, how did you handle these products before they got to the cow? Did you mix some? Yeah, we we, we know that uh, that's a really hot topic about how are you gonna feed the methion into the to the cows. So we did a mix. We use ground corn for putting the all the supplements in ground corn, and we use that mix in the TMR. So the idea was giving the uh, the, the the mixes and giving the products to the cow in a constant manner. That's why we did that. And you fed once a day? Once a day. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yeah, just, you know, to count, I think your question is, is really relevant in terms of methodology. Um, we do, we did try this trial to be as close to the field as you can, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what we try to, but we also know that some methionine sources, you may have some fragility issues when you run through some special mixes. So basically, you know, what we did is a four pound premix than the tiny source and then it was it was it was mixed again on the TMR and then fed once a day. So the idea is let's let's deliver the, the, the methionine at closest to the field conditions as we can. So that was that was one of the objectives. Yeah. And we we think depending on the methionine source that you're using, you know, maybe you're penalizing some sources or other mm -hmm. because of their method of delivering if you're using post dose or if you're using like a straight uh, top dress type of mixture. So that's why we decided to do that way. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And then my other question I had was um, about the technique itself. So as I know you all are aware, there are so many different methodologies, right? Especially for amino acids to assess bioavailability. So what about this technique makes it, I want to say superior to the other techniques that are out in the industry today? I guess the most important part about the technique is how easy it is to run it. Because the only thing that we need to do for uh, developing and for uh, running the technique at the farm level 
is feeding the selenium in the selenium the selenium source during an, uh, an estimated time and after that we are going to be analyzing the milk of those cows for selenium and we are going to be doing total nitrogen and those kinds of analysis are analysis that are really easy to do in a lab so compared to other techniques the other techniques involves uh, the use of in vitro bags and the washing and some some of the other techniques involve using a radio label methionine or you need to bleed the cows so we think that with this one the only thing that you need to take and collect is milk and that's something that you are doing every day at the farm so for us uh, we think that that's pretty convenient so do you think people could run this technique on the farm like not in a university type environment yes i think it's doable but of course people need to do some training because we are working with selenium and the cross contamination with minerals is really easy when we are uh, talking about samplings and samplers so the only thing that i need to be pretty careful is about cleaning the samplers in the most proper way for avoiding that cross contamination and for having uh, the sample that we want Jonas, I think your company uses this uh, methodology to make some business decisions. So I'm going to guess you have some level of confidence in it. Would you mind give us an idea of, of you know, how consistent do you think it is? How precise is it? Um, we'll speak to that a little very, bit. Very good question. Carrie really is trying to get us in trouble here when she asks <laughs> us to compare techniques, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I, th I think the point is um, understanding the technique has, uh, has its value when we try to disrupt less that normal feeding schedule, right? It's a less invasive procedure. Like when you start bleeding cows too often, you know, how you change those partition of amino acids and how, how you know, in terms of uh, immune system, how really it affects the, the animal, we don't know, right? We made all these assumptions. So I think that's the benefit of the technique. Um, in terms of, uh, of making a uh, business decision, uh, one thing that we always wonder and we try to do in this trial is, is not only what that bioavailability is, but what's the variation around that bioavailability. Because you can have a bioavailability of 50%, it varies from 10 to 90, uh, you might be in trouble, right? Um, so, so that's I think is another good point of uh, what we try to do here. We try to use more cows, you know, using 36 uh, cows, and uh, you know, Latin Square gives you a lot of power. Uh, if you see what we did, and try to estimate that error using Monte Carlo simulation. So, in terms of business decision, I would say, don't look to the only to that bioavailability number. But look to the variation around the bioavailability number in your decisions, um, and I think that's pretty important, uh, and that's what we try to, ass to assess with this trial. Uh, and that's from from basically, if you think when we set up the trial, um, uh, we use we use as payload the manufacturer recommendations, uh, and you can see the, the response of the animals in the bioavailability estimate. So I would say. From, from the sources that you use, we are, are pretty uh, within what we expect, you know, with the manufacturer combination, only one source would be uh, out of the of the combination based on, on, on this experiment, right? Um, so the technique allows that, and I think not only evaluating the bioavailability, the relative bioavailability, but what's what's that range is, is, is really the key. Yeah. So just a real quick question. I, I believe one of the uh, treatments was Immunosure XM, of course, uh, marketed by Balchem. And so I don't want to talk about the other ones, but can you 
can you tell us, was, was I mean, sure XM one of the three that did meet the uh, manufacturer's requirements? It was, it was. It was. And you can see the error as well. This was lifting um, recommendation. So I think the technique allows us to do that quite well. And as I said, in the fitting situations that we did, I think when you use a fat protection mechanism, maybe sometimes you were penalizing that by using different methods. So, um, and, and basically, um, it was one of the, that was within um, your manufacturer specifications. Good, very well. I think Clay did a good job when he, uh, when he put those specs together. Oh, he's, he's on track. He's on track. All right. Um, very well. So, I hear any other uh, key learnings, key things you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, no, I wrap things up. I guess, I guess this is a technique that is really easy to use. If you are going to want to see, as Jonas said before, the consistency of the, of the supplements that you are going to be using at your farm, this is really easy to do because, as I told you before, selenium and nitrogen are kind of a common analysis that some labs used to do and as I told you before as well milk cows are producing milk every single day and that's the sample that we use for running this method so this is something that is really easy to do and of course it's gonna have all the outputs that Jonas told us that is going it's gonna give us a clearer uh, a scenario about the quality and the consistency of the products that we are going to feed be feeding to our house. Yeah, excellent. Well, listen, I want to thank both of you guys for uh, stopping by, spending some time with us today here at the Real Science Exchange, and I hope to see you next time here where it's oh, always happy hour and you're yeah. always among friends. Thanks Still, for... We're not drinking it. Thanks for having us, <laughs> and it was my fifth podcast, so, yeah. Oh, good, Happy good. to do it. Well, let's hope it's not your life. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the American Dairy Science Association meetings here in Kansas City, Missouri. With us today is Kayla Allward. Uh, Kayla is a PhD student at Virginia Tech uh, by way of Georgia. Mm -hmm. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. And you're going to be uh, now, have you, are you presenting a paper or poster? Presented an oral. On, okay. on this. Yep. Okay, present an oral, and it's the dry period environmental impact on colostrum volume and quality. Sounds real interesting. It, it is. I, I'm really excited. Glad you guys asked me here. Yeah, super. So why don't you just give us a little bit of background on the genesis of this project? Sure. So I think this idea for this project really came from some anecdotal information from producers who were, you know, kind of unsure of why they're seeing some slump in colostrum volume in fall months, trying to figure out why are we seeing this slump. And so then we started thinking into, okay, what could be impacting the cows that we're not already accounting for? You know, that the dry period's managed pretty closely. I mean, we're really strict on how long they're dry, um, you know, the vaccination protocol and everything to make sure we get good colostrum. So what factor are we not taking into account? And we thought that was gonna be seasonality. And so that's kind of led us to this project of trying to figure out, okay, during that dry period when those cows are dry, is the weather what the missing factor is? And uh, yeah, so that's kind of the basis for this project. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, Kayla, I've invited a couple experts with us tonight. Uh, Dr. Pete Morrow, he's a DVM. He works for Balchem Corporation. Also, Dr. Clay Zimmerman, he's my co-host on the Real Science Exchange. Clay, I saw you uh, shaking your head over there, agreeing <laughs> with uh, producers uh, seeing a slump in the fall. Um, what do you think about that? Is that something you've seen as a, as a practicing nutritionist? 
Yeah, yes, we get questions about that all the time. Yeah. Yes. Good deal. So, um, Kayla, why don't you just uh, give us an overview of the project uh, protocol um, and how you put it together? Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. So um, this project was actually conducted at three different farms in Virginia. Uh, we tried to get a lot of animals enrolled in this project so we could get a really robust data set. Um, and so we uh, ended up enrolling three different farms. Um, we had... Uh, I think max about 150 animals from one farm and at the minimum about 50 animals from uh, each of the other farms. Um, and so what we did was when these animals calved, uh, we had the farm measure uh, with a BRICS refractometer, um, kind of a, an on-farm estimate of colostrum quality. They also measured colostrum volume as it was produced and then they took a 50 mil sample for us and we sent that off to DHIA to be analyzed for uh, components and we also looked at um, IgA, IgG, IgM, those important immunoglobulin levels. And then in addition to that, where that photo period and kind of THI thing comes into play is after we collected all that data, I went back and found what the nearest nearest weather station was to each of those farms. And then for each day that the cow was dry, figured out what the average uh, length of daylight that she was exposed to was. And then also figured out what the average daily THI or temperature humidity index value was. And then uh, figured that out for her whole dry period, came up with an average for her far off period and the close up period to try to make some associations with, you know, what was going on with uh, weather and how that impacted their colostrum volume and quality. So were the dairies, were they very far apart or were they yeah, so we, we tried to capture a range, um, and we got some dairies in northern Virginia, uh, some right near us in southwest Virginia. We got, we got a wide range. Interesting. Yeah. From your uh, studies, you think you could take and be a practical application in terms of, uh, you know, uh, talking about day length. Um, you think we could do some day length manipulation to improve colostrum, colostrum production and quality? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it doesn't seem that col the photo period seemed to impact colostrum quality and volume much. It seemed like the temperature humidity index was really that more important factor. And so we, it's already in place, the recommendation for um, dairy farmers to limit the amount of light that cows are getting while they're dry because that's going to improve milk production after they calve. And so we kind of wanted to see um, could that be having negative impacts on colostrum? Uh, and we didn't see that. So it, it seems that THI is the more important factor. And, and when we started getting cows that were up in those higher THIs, they were having negative impacts on their colostrum volume and quality. But of course, that doesn't really jive with what producers are seeing. You know, they, they're saying they're seeing a slump in colostrum in the fall. So I've still got some more research to do with that to try to figure out why they're seeing that slump and we're not in our data. But it does seem that um, THI is the more important factor. And what's more interesting is that it was only for the close-up period. So all the data that we collected on the far off dry period, so uh, anything from the day they went dry until 21 days before they calved, didn't really have any effects on colostrum. It was just that close-up 21-day pre-calving period that was real critical. So Kayla, were the, were the, the samples were taken all throughout the year? Yeah, so we collected data for about a year and a half. Um, so I think it was uh, something like November from one year um, all through that next November and then into July or August of that next year. So we, not quite two years of data, um, but yeah, quite uh, at least one full year to get capturing that whole season. Have you uh, had the opportunity to look at anything besides 
immunoglobulins maybe into the cellular content of the colostrum? Is that something you've evaluated? Good question. Uh, so we did not evaluate that. Um, I do think it's interesting though, we've got some calf data. So we do have some uh, birth weights um, and some calf uh, health up to 60 days, um, so that pre-weaning period. And I haven't had a chance to analyze that data yet, and it's, and it's on only a subset of those animals, but I'm really excited to see what that data looks like to see if we can make some associations with uh, you know, seasonality and that calf health factor. So colostrum yields were measured in these yes, cows? Yeah, so the farmers uh, did uh, measure the colostrum volume from that first milking. So how how soon after calving were they harvesting colostrum? Uh, good question. So it ranged a little bit farm to farm, but they had pretty strict procedures in place and they did have a night shift crew on all of those farms. So it was within six hours of calving. So we, we tried to get um, pretty pretty right after calving to get that, that first measurement. Do you have uh, recorded data maybe how, uh, to how the, t the time from calving until the colostrum is harvested, or was that not col uh, collected? We do have that, um, and we also have the time of day that the animals calved and that sort of thing. We did have a couple issues with uh, maybe some differences farm to farm with not writing down the exact time, so we, we don't maybe trust that data quite so much. We did make sure that everybody was collecting everything within that first six hours, but um, some of that other data that the farmers were putting in might be a little bit off, so I haven't included that in any models yet. Were these, did, did these uh, dairies, do they have adequate uh, cow cooling for the dry cows? Yeah, great question. So what were those cows doing during their dry period? All of them were housed on pasture. Um, so that's that's an important thing to note. They, we did check and make sure before we kind of collected this data that all of them had similar dry cow procedures. So you know, similar dry off procedure, dry off date before their due date. Um, you know, and similar ration that they were fed. Um, and as far as cow cooling, they were similar. Um, some of the the farms. Uh, that were in the southern region did experience some higher THI values. So our results do vary pretty significantly by farm and we had to keep that in the model. So in the future, I'd really love to redo this project and do it on one farm where I can get a whole bunch of animals. But uh, just for, you know, to get animal numbers, we ended up do collecting data from three different farms. But yeah, things, things vary pretty significantly by farm. So you talked about the future, wanting to do it again. Are you going to be able to? Do you have enough time? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a really cool question. So we actually did our own study um, on cows at Virginia Tech where we uh, housed them completely in a temperature controlled environment and just manipulated a photo period to try to tease out is it photo period, is it THI? Uh, and that's another abstract that I included, but I can share with you guys that um, there wasn't any differences by photo period. So uh, when cows were exposed to either a long day of 16 hours of light or short day of eight hours of light per day, there was no effect on colostrum um, volume and colostrum quality that we've seen so far. And we did that study with jerseys and Holsteins. Um, so it's, it's pretty interesting that we're not seeing that difference there. That's what leads me to believe maybe temperature humidity index is more that important factor. So in, in, in your photo period study, did, did you see effects on milk production beyond 
you know, colostrum? Yeah, great, great questions. We did. Um, so we followed those cows until they were, I think, 15 weeks in lactation. And we did see that the animals that were limited in photo period produced more milk after they calved. Um, but there's a little bit of a conflicting data. We didn't see as much of an increase in Holsteins. We saw a big difference in our jerseys, not as much in the Holsteins. Um, so we're still trying to tease out, you know, whether some breed differences, because these guys are definitely behaving differently after calving. Kayla, as we wind down here, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience? I think this is a really cool project. I think it's, um, I think it highlights that we're really closely managing colostrum as an industry and looking at a lot of cool key factors. And I think most of them have been explored and kind of dialed into what we need to make those factor, the recommendations for them in order to perfect colostrum volume and production. But I still think that there needs to be some more research in photo period and temperature humidity index, and particularly how they differentially impact different breeds of animals. Um, I think there's uh, some information out there that we haven't yet collected, and so I'm excited to keep doing some research on that and get some more information so we can make more recommendations and improve colostrum for the industry. Mm. I want to thank you for stopping by today, Kayla. You're a very uh, bright, very impressive young lady. Uh, very articulate. What's the future hold for you? You're in your third year, PhD student at Virginia Tech. Where do you go from here? Yeah, so I'm excited to be writing uh, a postdoc grant. I'm hoping I'm going to stay right at Virginia Tech. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and get into reproductive physiology. So that's what I did for my master's, and that's what I'm hoping to get back into for um, my postdoc. And then I'd love to go into academia, uh, okay. teach students. Um, have a role in extension and helping producers and uh, continue conducting research. Oh, Clay, I was hoping she'd say she'd wanted to go to industry because I think we got a good one here. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, Kaylee, I appreciate you stopping by. appreciate all uh, the research that you've done and uh, wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Very welcome. Hello everyone, we're coming to you from the ADSA meetings here in Kansas City. Uh, with me is Miguel Cherivi, right? Yeah, okay. correct. And Andreas Contreras, almost rolled my R. Uh, anyway, they uh, are from Michigan State University. Uh, Miguel is a third year PhD student and Andreas is a uh, advisor and associate professor uh, there at the uh, university. Um, Miguel did a presentation, I believe it was yesterday, uh, an oral presentation, and the title of his talk was Lipolysis Inhibition Improves Clinical Outcomes in the Treatment of Ketosis in Dairy Cows. So very interesting, had a conversation just earlier and then found that very interesting. Why don't you give, give us an overview of the, uh, the work that you did and uh, the presentation you gave yesterday. Okay, first of all, thank you for inviting us. Uh, it's great to be here with you. Um, the main idea of this clinical trial was to enroll clinical cows with clinical cases of, of clinical um, symptoms of ketosis. And, uh, those cows were from a commercial dairy. So the idea with this uh, study was to not just treat the, the ketosis in the terms of improving glucose concentrations, but also we want to uh, inhibit the increased lipolysis that is occurring in those cows. Okay, very well. And then, uh, uh, Andreas, what, 
what was the protocol for this trial? How did you set that up? So the idea was to um, use the standard uh, treatment that the commercial house used for treating clinical ketotic cows, and that's propylene glycol. And as Miguel said, that propylene glycol really targets the hypoglycemia in those cows. Yeah. But also we wanted to include uh, lipolysis inhibitors, because as you know, lipolysis dysregulation is one of the key leading factors to the development of clinical ketosis. So we use two uh, inhibitors. One is niacin that targets the classic lipolytic pathway. And the other one is uh, banamine, which targets the inflammatory pathway for obvious reasons, right? It's an NSAID. Uh, so we enrolled uh, about 110 cows, uh, Miguel, and uh, we uh, divided them in uh, three treatment groups, and uh, the and those those uh, those treatments included the, the glycol, the standard treatment, uh, glycol plus niacin. Uh, it is the remain protected the niacin uh, from Balkan, and the third treatment was uh, propylene glycol plus niacin plus the flunixin, uh, megumin, or banamin. <clears throat> And we uh, also enroll control cows that were matched by days in milk and lactation number. And we uh, started the treatments. And can you please describe the treatments, Miguel? The, the treatments? Yeah, the dosing. And oh, okay, correct. So propylene glycol, uh, it was the dose that is that had been used for the dairy farm. It was 300 grams of propylene glycol once per day for five days. Niacin was administered uh, 24 grams once per day for three days. And the, the cows that received the flunixin was administered 1.1 milligrams per kilogram once per day for three days. And just kind of for clarification, I think that was 24 grams of the rumen protected niacin. Correct. Not just straight niacin. Correct. Yeah, very well. Uh, I'd like to introduce my uh, co host for the session, Dr. Glenn Ains. He's technical service manager for Balcount. Welcome, Thank you. Glenn. Appreciate it, Scott. Always good to be here, buddy. Yep, it so, is. Uh, just a quick question. So, from a, I've never heard or, or, I guess, knew much about banamine in terms of impacts on lipolysis. Mm -hmm. So, I understand how niacin works. Meth, you know, method, method-wise, how does banamine work? Okay. So, we recently uh, demonstrated in a paper that just uh, went out recently that uh, inflammation is important in controlling lipolysis. So in this paper, we start uh, looking at the effect of LPS as a model of inflammation. So we consider that inflammation is, is an important factor regulating lipolysis. So when we move to the binamine, so there are for sure as an anti-inflammatory drug, it, it could target not just the endotoxin that, that may be present, but also um, cytokines or TNF-alpha that are uh, triggering lipolysis. But essentially, the main factor that is reported in other species is the reduction of the, the, the prostaglandins by binamine is uh, one of the main targets of reducing this lipolysis because it's, uh, it's demonstrated that um, prostaglandins are also targeting uh, class A, uh, is the lipolysis in, within the hypostasis. Interesting. Interesting. So, so I think is that when uh, IL-6, for example, which is a cytokine, and TNF-alpha are secreted 
by immune cells or by the adipocytes in the fat tissue, those two actually trigger lipolysis. And it's an independent pathway uh, to the classic pathway, which is the one that's triggered by adrenaline or a growth hormone. Mm -hmm. So when the, uh, the interleukins bind to a receptor in the apocyte, that triggers actually the activation of lipases. So the idea was to target the two triggers of lipolysis in the apocyte in cows that were clinically ketotic. So that was the goal here. In anticipation that they would be sort of additive. Yeah. Yeah, which is why he did the propylene, then the niacer, and then the propylene, and the niacer, and the banamine. Correct. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of, of how you evaluated uh, the cattle and, and their response to it, can you, can you address that? Correct. Uh, we, uh, as the carpenter mentioned earlier, so we have some uh, criteria for inclusion. So we established that a cow that was recovered also when they were free of clin clinical symptoms, when they recovered the feed intake, and most important when uh, BHB levels were lower than 1.2 millimoles, that was the, the point for inclusion. So we uh, collect specifically samples on day three, day seven and day 14, and in those days we evaluate the rate of recovery of those cows. Okay. And, and what, did, what did it tell you? So essentially we start observing immediately at day three a better recovery in the cows that received the niacin and also in the cows that received niacin plus flunixin being better for the cows that received the combination of niacin and flunixin. And specifically on day seven, it was statistically significant, this difference. Uh, and we observed that the combination of this niacin and flunixin had 1.4 more chances of recovery than a cow that received just the propylene glycol. So you saw the, the additive effect that you were yes, looking yeah. for. So if you, if you wanna uh, look at in practical terms, uh, the lowest recovery rate was for glycol alone. Intermediate was for glycol plus niacin, and the faster recovery rate was for the cows that eat, that had banamine and uh, niacin in the treatment. Uh, we evaluated also uh, the reduction of lipolysis by measuring NIFAS and BHB. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also, uh, when we collected ipos tissue explants, uh, we evaluated how responsive was the ipos tissue to lipolysis and how responsive was to insulin. Because one of the reasons why lipolysis becomes dysregulated is because the ipocytes do not respond to insulin, which is uh, an inhibitor of lipolysis. It's the major inhibitor yeah. of lipolysis. They, they become insensitive, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So when we evaluated that, the ipos tissue explants from cows that were treated with niacin and banamine responded better to insulin than the uh, explants that were treated, that were from cows that were only treated with glycol. Yeah, so the biology follows the logic, right? In this study. <laughs> I know that doesn't always work that way. I hope in the follow-up studies it yeah. does too. So if you were to just think in terms of, uh, I think we talked earlier that when you looked at the cattle, they had clinical signs, they were down, they were lethargic, all those fun things that you get to deal with when you've got a clinically ketotic cow, and then you treated them. And then from a physical perspective, just observationally, did they recover very quickly? Did it take a few days? Very quickly in the cows that had both inhibitors. The herdsmen at this dairy, they were 
very happy with these treatments because they say, well, you got the magic bullet. The next day they are fine and they, they're eating a lot and, uh, you know, they, they return to production faster than the cows that were only treated with glycol. So they were pretty happy at the farm. I'll bet, yeah. One more headache eliminated. Yeah. <laughs> or at least reduced. Well, at least for the clinical ketosis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's next? So we want to actually explore this more in detail uh, to see what happens when you include NSAIDs uh, in the lipolysis uh, control within adipocytes. Mm -hmm. Because it, this really has something to do with the way maybe prostaglandins, maybe interleukin receptors actually modulate lipolysis. So what if we reduce the, the production of those interleukins of those uh, cytokines? What's the impact on iposite lipolysis? So that's one thing. And we also want to include, uh, obviously, uh, niacin in the equation because there is an additive effect that's clear. So that's, that's, those are the next steps with this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you're, you're probably somewhat familiar with uh, Reassure or Protected uh, Choline product. Um, which can help move uh, fat out of the liver, right? So maybe that would help as well. I'm just tossing out some oh, certainly. research ideas for you. Obviously, this this research uh, is uh, this experiment was focused exclusively on the hypostasis. Mm -hmm. yep. We need to include the liver in the equation, obviously, and then some treatments that certainly would target the liver, the hepatocyte. Sure. Yeah, lot lots of interest in the in the research world over this whole inflammation thing. It's it's huge. Oh, I agree. Yeah. 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 Gentlemen, this has been a very interesting conversation. I'd like to go on a bit longer, but we we have our next uh, interview uh, up next. So, uh, would like to say in closing, uh, Miguel, uh, third year uh, PhD student, what's the future for you? So essentially, first to finish my PhD. It's <laughs> a good idea. It's a good idea, yeah. And then I, I, will, I would like to uh, keep doing research, so for sure I, I would like to do a postdoc, and then let's see what happens. All right, yeah. very well. Well, the best of luck to you. Uh, thank Andreas, you so thanks for stopping by. appreciate you guys uh, spending some time with us this afternoon. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. All right. It's been a thank pleasure. You. Enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. you. Hello, I'm Scott Sorrell here at the ADSA meetings and we've been visiting with students and postdocs and researchers and the like uh, talking about the research that they've done recently. Uh, with me is Susanna Reisinen. Uh, she's currently at the University of Helsinki. She's doing a postdoc there, but she uh, did a research at Penn State University. Suzanne, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Thank you. Hey, would you mind giving us just kind of a brief overview of the research that you did while there at Penn State? Yeah, so my m main focus was on histidine requirements for lactate in dairy cows, and I also did some research with bioavailability of rumen-protected amino acids, but mainly on histidine. Very well. Yeah. And with me, my co-host, Dr. Clay Zimmerman and Dr. Glenn Ains. Welcome. Good to be here, Scott, always. I'll let you guys dig into the data. All right. <laughs> Glenn, you want to start us out? Well, can you tell us a little bit uh, about your research? Yeah, so 
this particular research, we kind of combined all the histidine work that has been done so far. A lot of that work was done at Penn State University, uh, including my dissertation and PhD work. And um, in total, we were looking at uh, around 20 experiments overall published between 1999 and 2021, uh, more recent research. Um, some of the experiments uh, were done with uh, grass silage diets and some with corn silage diets. Um, and then we were, and also the, the way the histidine was supplied was both with rumen protected histidine, infused histidine in different ways. Um, and then we were testing, kind of simply just looking at the effect of histidine on supplementation on different production variables. And then we also did some regression analysis looking at the, the kind of the, how, how the responses were related to uh, digestible histidine supply overall. So how many of the studies were done with rumen-protected histidine? Um, 12, 12 of the uh, 20, so a little over half of them, um, yeah. Did you see any difference in response between how the uh, histidine was supplied? We did um, for the milk true protein yield. There was a difference um, looking at the uh, histidine type. So with infused histidine, the response was greater or the magnitude of change with uh, increasing digestible histidine supply uh, compared with the rumen protected histidine. Both increased um, milk protein yield as the dose increased, um, but more so for the infused histidine. And similarly also with the plasma histidine, we saw a difference there. And I think that's uh, partly due to the differences in bioavailability estimations for the rumen protected histidine. So it's a little bit trickier to have the exact dose, so probably we underestimate the dose from the rumen protected histidine. So what were the mean responses that you were seeing from a production standpoint with histidine supplementation? Um, so for um, milk milk yield, uh, energy corrected milk yield, it's um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's, it's around half a kilogram um, per day, uh, what we saw. And and then for milk true protein yield, also the response was uh, around po uh, half a kilogram per day um, when supplemented compared to control. Yeah, so it's pretty solid data, I think, showing this effect of histidine and importance, especially for milk milk protein yield. Does stage of lactation of these animals? Does that well, play a role? So most of the experiments, I think, have been done with mid-lactation cows. So I, I don't know of any research done in transition cows, early lactation cows. Uh, so I, I think there is more work to be done there, for sure. Especially with, um, we know that there is a mobilization of histidine uh, during early lactation, and histidine is an important part of the muscle tissue also. So there might be something there to look into. I noticed you called out the forages that you had yeah. in, the, in that research, was yeah. that something that you were looking for or did you try to tease that data out? We haven't um, gotten there yet um, with the analysis, but we will. We want to look into it. Um, actually, histidine was found to be the first limiting amino acid like 20 years ago at mm -hmm. my old, this current university in Finland, they did some yep. work with infused histidine and they were like the first showing that histidine could be limiting. Um, and this was done on, on grass silage-based diets. Um, there aren't any work done with rumen-protected histidine with grass silage, uh, which I, I, I hope to do in the future, mm. continue this work. Um, and they haven't done any work since uh, with histidine in, in Europe or with, with grass silage-based diets. So I, I really want to explore that more. What type of grasses? 
it's mainly thimothy, thimothy grass, thimothy. which uh, highly digestible, uh, a lot of soluble fiber in the rumen. So I think that's in grass silage diets. I think it's specifically due to the dependence on microbial protein, and that's why histidine probably becomes limiting in those diets. So in all these these studies you evaluated, did mm. you did you look at potentially lysine and methionine as potential modulators of a response to histidine? Yeah, we, we have the data. Um, that's also something we are still kind of running the different analysis and figuring out what to include in the model and uh, what relationships to look into. But that that's definitely one important thing is to look at the, I think we will go for like efficiency of utilization of, of different amino acids, essential amino acids, including methionine and lysine, and then looking into how the response varied depending on their efficiency uh, in terms of histidine efficiency sure. and supply. Yeah, and it's important not to forget these other amino acids because, Absolutely. you know, it's not just one thing that's limiting, but we have to look at the profile of amino acids. <laughs> so I had a, a question about the, you showed the, uh, the responses to infused versus the responses to the RP fed. Yeah. Is there anything you can, can you calculate out of that or estimate out of there what the bioavailability actually would be for the, the yeah. RP license? Yeah, and I think that's something, um, uh, someone else also commented on this after my presentation, and I think it's it's a really important point and good point to, this is a good chance for me to look into the bioavailability estimations. There, the, Some of the amino acids, rumen protected amino acids, are not the same between the experiments, so there might ah. be, I have to look into and go back and see uh, the estimations used in different experiments because it's like uh, in some of my experiments I used my own estimations of bioavailability and then others have used different and that's also the whole another problem yeah. <laughs> or thing that we have to look into is the bioavailability especially when figuring out uh, requirements of amino acids and then if we are using rumen protected amino acids but then we still are debating the bioavailability, uh, bioavailability of these amino acids and how to measure it and then you know yeah absolutely. so it's it's I, a, bit, a little bit tricky but i think there is something there that i i could look into and see if i can you know correct for that uh, by availability estimations with the plasma data because you, you did try to estimate the digestible histidine yeah i did yeah. this was uh, one of like a separate trial that i did ah, um, okay yeah so that's that, that explains the yeah. answer to my question yes <laughs> yes yes so susanna with you know, with all the research that's been done now with the meta-analysis, mm. is there enough information to um, estimate a requirement for histidine? Uh, this is a, always a tricky question if I if I want to set, a, a, you know, grams per day requirement or not. But we have been looking into the efficiency of utilization. And with Dr. Lapierre, um, she's been estimating that. Um, and then I also did my own estimations in my uh, one of my or all my experiments. And it looks like it would be around point somewhere point seventy seven point eight, and based on the meta analysis I did, it looks like it's somewhere around sixty grams per day of digestible histidine. Uh, that's the data we we have, and that um, and the meta analysis is showing. But of course, we it depends on so many things. So yeah, I don't want to give you know uh, this type of recommendation. Um, but um, I think we do need some more data too to establish it and with different diets, especially grass silage based diets, low protein diets, maybe it's different, yeah. So in, in Europe, mm. if if a diet's deficient in histidine, how would you supplement it right now? It's very tricky because we they can't use um, blood meal, for example, which is a good source of histidine. Um, 
So uh, we, I, we have done some work with faba bean uh, and rapeseed meal actually has a pretty good histidine concentration. So um, they are saying also that if we have uh, rapeseed meal or canola meal in the diets, they maybe are not that uh, deficient in histidine. Okay. So it depends on the diet and how, how high in protein you want to be. Right. Yeah. But I want to be, uh, I, I want to be, uh, you know, low protein diets, and then you you have to find a way to supplement histidine for sure. Suzanne, it's been a very interesting discussion. Uh, to kind of, kind of summarize things, what are a couple things that the audience should take from your research? I think we 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 have to start thinking more about histidine, uh, included in the the limiting amino acids with methionine and lysine. I think that's important, especially if we are driving toward lower protein diets overall. I think histidine is is one of the three for sure to 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 look into, and I um, and I hope we we can. Um, start testing it with different different type of uh, basal diets and combining with with different basal diets very well so uh now that you're uh, back in well back in europe at helsinki what kind of research are you doing now uh, we have been working on legume silages red clover silage and um, baba bean uh, both as a whole crop silage and protein concentrate and they're actually methionine is one of the limiting amino acids in legumes okay. and that's what i've been working on looking at supplementing methionine on legume-based diets. Yeah, very well. Well, listen, I want to thank you for joining us today. This has been a treat. Thank you. All right. Good luck thank to you. Very much. Thanks. Thank you. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash realscience to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars. Thank you.